I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Okay, good morning, everybody, and Chodesh Tov, second day of Adar. So um, we have two Adars this year, just so you know. So we have 60 days to be happy and to beat ourselves up for not being happy. So we have extra, extra days that we are meant to work on our happiness and grow our Simcha. So in Adar, we're told that we can cash in on our sadness for, and exchange it for joy and build on it every day because we all know the Pasuk, Misha Nichnas Adar, Marbin Simcha. Whoever enters the month of Adar increases in their happiness. And of course, there's many good reasons to be happy in Adar. One of the reasons we're told is that Moshe was born in the month of Adar. But Adar is a month that, um, of course, we were saved from the wicked Haman. And uh, the Jewish people continued on. <clears throat> so just to uh, speak a little bit about Haman and how it relates to our class today. We know, I gave a class last night on jealousy. We know that everything, the secret to the city of happiness is in the state of mind. And, oh, I didn't show off my coat, my forum coat. Yeah. Just modeling my Purim coat. My son is a bit artistic. There's a fish for the month of Adar on two sides. There's a bottle in my pocket here. And uh, this is Mordechai. On this side, this side, and Haman on this side. So just to get us all in the mood there. Okay, so <clears throat> the same word for the simcha, to be happy, are the same letters as the word machshava. Martin Seligman thinks he discovered positive psychology, but... He got it from here, nice Jewish boy, because embedded in the Hebrew words, it's telling us that if you want to be besimcha, it all begins with your thoughts, right? It all begins with how you're thinking. And of course, sometimes we feel like we're not in control of our thoughts. They take over. We get obsessed with them. We start ruminating on things that bring us down, that make us upset, that make us worried that make us anxious. And of course, we have the ability to click on positive thoughts, to focus on all the blessings in our life, to work on being the simcha. And again, we, we had a whole course on simcha. For some people, it's easier than others. Some people are more prone to sadness, more prone to depression, whether it's biological and chemical, or whether it's just a home air, but we can all work on trying to make a date with those worries and thoughts and anxieties every day. Set them aside, tell them I'm going to talk to you later, but not now. We'll have a meeting later on and have a half an hour meeting with all of those worries and thoughts and anxieties and try to enjoy and focus your thoughts on good and positive things, right? It's like a friend of mine was saying, you can have so much good in your life and so much blessing, you know, going down, like we said, to the most minutest details, right? Of the fact that, you know, you opened your eyes this morning. You have people in your life who love you. You know, there are people in, in your life that that uh, depend on you and look to you. And and that in, that in itself is, is, is to be happy with. But unfortunately, human nature is that we're wired to go towards the negative. And it's interesting because the Megillah, Megillah's Esther, the Gemara of the Megillah asks the question, where do we find an illusion? Where do we find Haman in the Torah? So we actually find Haman in the Torah back in the story of the Garden of Eden, 
where basically Adam and Chava have both just eaten from that one tree that Hashem told them, you can have everything. The whole world is yours, right? Everything in this beautiful garden belongs to you, except there's this one tree that you cannot eat from. That's Asr, that's off limits. So the word that Hashem uses when, when the uh, Adam and Chava um, are exposed, literally, right? They find themselves naked and they have just eaten from the tree. The words of the Torah say, Hamin ha'etz, you ate from the tree, Hamin. So the rabbis say, just rearrange, I mean, just change the vowels underneath the word Hamin and you have the name Haman, right? This is an allusion to Haman. So what does Haman have to do with the Garden of Eden and eating from the tree? So what the rabbis teach us is that the root of Haman's wickedness comes from the same root of a human being feeling like it's never enough. Okay? That Haman, as we know from the Purim story, every single person was bowing down to him. He was considered to be one of the richest men that ever lived. But there was this one guy, one Jew who didn't bow down to him. And so the idea that we learn here is if I can't have it all, if it's not perfect, if it's not exactly the way I want it, then it all means nothing. Then all of the blessings in my life become totally eclipsed by that one thing that I'm unable to obtain or that I can't control in terms of getting it. And so this is where we see an allusion to Haman, the very beginning of the Torah, to teach us this lesson that Adam and Chava had the entire world and everything in it. And the one thing that they couldn't have is what made them, so to speak, miserable, or made them decide that unless we get this, we can't be happy. So, you know, we all have this human tendency and we all have a little bit of Haman inside of us, right? And so that's part of the challenge of being a joyful and happy person is to focus, right? There are those who mourn that roses have thorns and there are those who rejoice that thorns have roses. So this is our choice. The city of happiness is in the state of mind. Okay, ladies, we're going to continue with our topic, which in the Hebrew is called ta'ava, which very often is, is translated as desires or lusts, but we're going to really broaden it to the basic uh, category of impulse control, right? Being able to control our impulses, right? Whether it's uh, speaking Lashon Hara, whether it's dieting, whether whatever it is that we have trouble controlling ourselves in, we're going to find out there's a lot of areas in our life where this, um, this Mida of Taiva comes into play. So the first of all, last week we spoke about water being, uh, uh, being the uh, symbol or the element that uh, represents pleasures in this world. And we know that in Judaism, pleasures are a good thing. God created the world with pleasure. He wants us to enjoy it. But we gave the mashal, the analogy of a tree, that if you give a tree or a plant too much water, it dies. If you give a plant too little water, it's also going to die, not do well. So it's about knowing how much pleasure we should be taking from the world and how to use whatever pleasures we have as a means, not as an end in itself, but as a means towards spiritual excellence, as a means towards spiritual greatness. You know, I, I told the story yesterday, um, so I'll just repeat it. I told my friend that I, she came up in my class. Now I can tell her she came up in two classes and she'll say, oh, I'm really famous now. But one of the girls, when we were talking about jealousy, was talking about being jealous of other people's spiritual uh, abilities. You know, like she said, I think these girls that I'm teaching are at the beginning of their Jewish journey. Um, you know, they're, uh, they're in a program called Seriously Sold, S-O-U-L-E-D. 
And they're girls that are becoming Balechuva from all over North America. And we're doing Jealousy, which we did together for some of you know, remember that. But anyway, one of them was asking about, you know, what if I'm jealous of other people's spiritual growth? Is that negative? Is that bad? So I explained that there's an element of jealousy, which we call peanut sofrim, jealousy of the scholars, if you like. That's a spiritual type of jealousy. That's a good jealousy if it's going to make you want to do more and be more, right? It's going to, you know, if you're going to be spiritually jealous of others and become depressed and despairing and, oh my gosh, I'm never going to get there. You know, that's not a, that's not going to help you. But if it's a jealousy that says, I want to be like you. And this story of my friend popped into my mind that I was once with her in Costco and she was throwing all kinds of stuff into her cart. And she's a woman of means, but regardless of that, you know, she was throwing in linens and towels. And then we got to the snack food and she's throwing in snack food. And with everything that she's throwing into her cart, she's saying, oh, this will be really good for the boys. This will be, oh, they'll love this. Oh, this will be great. Oh, they really need this. Anyway, what I discovered while shopping along with her is that she was filling her cart with things for the deaf yeshiva. We have a deaf yeshiva in Toronto. It is the only yeshiva of its kind where deaf boys come from all over the world to Toronto, right? The Rosh Yeshiva himself is um, disabled in terms of his hearing. And it's an incredible thing. So here she was, you know, walking along my spiritual role model in the area of tzedakah and generosity and just the way that she was doing it, it was as if she was shopping for her family. It was as if she was shopping for her own. Oh, they're really going to love this snack food. I got to put this in. Oh, these towels are good. They're going <clears> to. <throat> and she was just buying stuff for the deaf yeshiva as an act of, right, generosity and seductive. So I said to myself, it's good to hang around wealthy people like this because they teach, you know, they teach you First of all, it, it shows you, you know, you should be jealous of their good deeds, not of their money for the people who are doing things like this. And secondly, it's a goading on for anybody who's around them to want to give more and do more and do it in that kind of style with the, that kind of feeling as if you're giving to your own kids, as if you're giving to your own family. So I just wanted to share that with you. Okay, so one of the things I want to mention is what happens very often when people begin to work on themselves, you know, when you start to work on yourself, you know, whether you're out there at the gym every day or you're eating very well, we start to become critical of other people around us who aren't on the same page, right? And this could happen uh, not just materially, but it happens spiritually too. It's like a spiritual Yetzir Hara that we can, you know, as we begin to engage in self-growth and we're taking all these muster classes and we're just getting better and better and and you know flexing our spiritual muscles all the time so we can start looking around us and saying what's wrong with everybody else right and we know that this is the ace element gone awry right because we said the ace element is that element that wants like fire right it wants us to grow and get bigger and develop ourselves but the way that, you know, it can express itself is what's wrong with all of you around me? Why aren't you doing what I'm doing? Why aren't you growing? Why aren't you developing yourself? So we have to be careful with that because we can start noticing what's wrong with everybody else. And we can start doing this with our husbands, with our children, with anybody who's in close proximity to us. As Rabbi Yisrael Salant said, when he, uh, who was the um, founder of the Musser movement, Right. He said, when I first started working on myself, or he said, before I started working on myself, I noticed everybody else's mistakes or and then when I started working on myself, I noticed everybody else's mistakes. But then I started working a little harder and I realized that, well, they have mistakes, but I also have mistakes. I also have things that I need to fix. And then he said he got to the highest level where he was able to see other people's virtues focus on what's good about them, and of course, continue to work on developing him, himself and, and, um, 
and assessing and correcting his own flaws. So that of course is a very high level, but until we get there, we can become very critical of other people. And uh, we have to be careful of this. There's actually a term that you'll find interesting that mental health professionals at a conference coin, which is called spiritual abuse, okay? And spiritual abuse is a new concept, but it's basically people who use their religious standards to control other people. So I thought you might find this interesting because I did. So a few examples are, you know, uh, let's say um, a husband doesn't let his wife go to a certain restaurant because that hexure there is not up to his standard. So this could be, for example, in Israel, this is very common. There's so many hexarium and there's so many levels of uh, standards in terms of kashrut. But this was one example they gave, you know, or let's say, you know, you're not allowed to visit your parents because your parents aren't religious enough. You know, or we can't have anything to do with your family because, you know, uh, they don't keep a kosher home, so we're not going there anymore. Okay, so this probably doesn't apply to any of you, but it's an interesting thing that this can happen. And this is something that we call um, spiritual abuse. So it's interesting. There's actually a Gemara that says that ladies are also very guilty of this, can be guilty of this. And this reality is expressed in the Gemara in Sota Chaf. It says, it ta it's talking about a woman there who practices, it says a woman who practices too much abstinence. In other words, she reduces as much pleasure in the world as she possibly can. She wants to be an ascetic in her spiritual piety. It says she fades out, she fades out the world. A woman who practices too much uh, abstinence fades out the world. So in a very concrete, um, physical way, it's referring to the fact that in terms of intimacy, procreation would fade out if a woman practices too much abstinence, so to speak, in an area of pleasure, okay? But conceptually, what it means, perhaps, is that she brings in some kind of negativity or punitive type of measures against the world, okay? That's a very interesting sentence. So the opposite is in Yeshayahu, it says that nashim shanenot, that women who are pleasant and calm infuse the physical world with spirituality in a beautiful way. Okay, so this is just something interesting to note that the Gemara and the, the um, sages pay attention to the fact that if a woman becomes excessively ascetic, it can be a very negative spiritual thing, not only for herself, but for her family, and even for the world at large. Because a woman's role primarily, right, is that we take the physical world and we elevate it, right? We have a very physical job, stereotypically. First of all, just the fact that we have life inside of us and we give birth to babies, it's very physical, right? The fact that we are the caretakers, the ones who generally feed the family, run the home, very involved in the material goings on. If we don't raise all of our physical pursuits to a more elevated level, it can really drag us down. And that's why we need self-care, we need to indulge ourselves, we need to give ourselves certain physical pleasures so that we can enjoy our role. Because often if we deny ourselves too much, like that plant that doesn't have enough water, not only do we suffer, but of course everybody else around us suffers, right? Happy wife, happy life, right? So as we said in last week's class, you know, Sometimes if we don't give ourselves those little extras, and we have to know, again, how much is extra and how much is just drowning out a certain emptiness, which, you know, a person has to know the difference between using pleasures to make ourselves happy so we can do our job or using pleasures to drown out emptiness that we feel inside ourselves. Okay, we're going to talk more about that. Okay, so... There is an idea, of course, in Masilis Yasharim, which is a Musser book, 
of precious. Precious means to separate oneself from the pleasures of the world. But this is considered a very high level. Most people don't even get to this chapter in the Silas Yisharim. It's called a, the level of a chassid. And it's a very difficult chapter, but um, a diff difficult level. And it's not for the ordinary person, okay? So the main thing that we do learn from Masila Sisharim, the path of the just written by the Ramchal, um, that is for all of us, is that we are supposed to, that the main purpose of a person in this world is to do mitzvos and to handle the challenges that come their way. And one of the ways, or one of the best ways to be able to do that is to make sure that you have the proper amount of water, of pleasure in your life. Because the pleasures of this world are to help us in this endeavor of God willing, developing ourselves as balei mitzvah, as doing more and more mitzvot, which connect us to Hashem, right? The same word, the same letters in the word mitzvah is the word sab, which means to connect. And of course, that's what the physical pleasures are supposed to help us with. So for example, just like in the physical world, I'd say, you know, I need to eat healthy. I need to eat a balanced meal. I need to stay away from foods that harm me, right? Because I want to be my best physically to be able to do the mitzvah, right? Because I need my body to do them. I need to be able to have zrizus, to alacrity to do the mitzvah. I need to be able to jump out of bed in the morning. I want to feel the best that I can be. Why? So that I can do the mitzvah to the maximum ability. Because when I'm tired or sluggish or sick or not feeling well, or I've made myself sick from too much pleasure, then I've lost the point of the pleasures, right? Even sleep at night, which is a pleasure, right? Going to sleep at night when you're tired is one of life's pleasures. But I once read in a book, there's a difference between the sleep of somebody who serves God and somebody who doesn't. Because basically the idea is that you're saying to God, give me a good sleep. And not just that, but my sleep itself is a mitzvah. Even when I'm doing nothing, I'm just lying there sleeping and snoring. Every second that I'm sleeping is a mitzvah. Why? Because then I know that I'm sleeping for the purpose of getting up the next morning, saying mode ani, washing my hands, sort of consecrating my actions, right? To a higher spiritual way of being in this world and saying, and I'm going to go through my day looking to do mitzvahs. What can I do for other people? How can I help you? How can I make your life better? What can I do when it comes to my relationship with God? What little mitzvah can I add, right? Putting tzedakah in a pushka, doing something that connects me in some way or another so that the person who thinks this way and lives their life this way, even when they're not doing, even when they're sleeping, right? The pleasure of relaxing which is a pleasure, going on vacation, right? In order to come back recharged, to be able to do more. That's also a way of using the material to become a greater spiritual person, okay? So a person has to always be taking a litmus test, you know, and asking themselves, is this pleasure conducive to my emotional health? Is it conducive to my calmness and my tranquility? Hashem made these pleasures around me so that I can have tranquility. I can have joy and happiness, right? But the irony is, is that these physical pleasures sometimes create tranquility or they create havoc, right? They can make things worse right? We know, like um, Shlomo HaMelech said, that, you know, material things are like salt water. They can become something that we chase, like, which is really one of the definitions of taiva. Taiva are things that we chase, and we're going to talk about this. And even though they don't make sense intellectually, and maybe we even regret it 
afterwards, somehow we just can't stop ourselves. So Shlomo HaMelech says, you know, it's like a knee-jerk reaction. It's like, what, before you do it, you say, you know, I want that. But after you do it, you say, why did I do that? Why did I, you know, succumb to that? So that's the struggle that we're talking about here. So again, on the one hand, these physical pleasures are supposed to create tranquility and calm so that I can not be distracted and go forward with my spiritual pursuits, right? Like we said last week, let the body have what it wants, you know, make it happy, and then you'll be able to let your soul lead, so to speak, right? You've calmed down the tiger. And if that's the point, then you're using the spirit, the physical world properly, okay? But when does it become too much that it actually creates havoc in your life? So you have to ask yourself, is this helping me do what I have to do in life? What happens when the pleasures or the pleasure moves you away from your purpose as opposed to moving you towards your purpose, right? Pleasures, unfortunately, can become addictions, right? People can become sucked in by them to the point that they're no longer in control. And the idea of this mita of taiva that, that, you know, touches on so many areas of life is how do we regain that control and recognize that that's really part, the biggest challenge of man, right, is to lead with the soul and not succumb to the bodies, um, which, you know, Rebetzin Heller said once, a very simple definition is the body is the voice of the taker, taking. What can I get? What can I get? And the soul is the voice of the giver. What can I give? What can I do for you? So again, this is so individual. And each person has to figure this out on their own, right? You could look at me and say, my gosh, she's like overindulgent, you know, like, look at her. What, you know, what's she wearing? What's she eating? What's she doing? But for me, it's not overindulgence because that's what I need to be relaxed and tranquil and allow my soul to take front seat. For somebody else, they may be able to live with much less or not need as much. And that's okay, too. A lot of this has to do with nature and nurture and what you grew up with and how you're wired and home air. And certainly the great people among the Jewish people, if you go visit in Israel or in New York, the Gedolim, right, who we consider to be at the top of the totem pole, at the top of the pyramid, they live very threadbare lives. You know, a chair, a table, a bed. They don't need anything else. They don't want anything else. They have thousands of followers who in a minute would build them a mansion. They don't want it. They don't need it. They don't feel like they're missing it. But we have to be realistic, right? And that's where this idea, again, of spiritual abuse that we started with, person can think they're on this level and abuse everybody else for not being, right? But that in itself shows that they're not on the level. Okay, so that's uh, just a, a good example of that. So one example that Dina Schoonmaker gives is of a student of hers who had just given birth to a kid and was feeling really depressed. And maybe she had a little bit of postpartum. So, you know, she got her age part of herself to get herself to the gym and start exercising. And of course, this was fantastic. This was exactly what she needed. And she even told Dina that these classes she's going to, she called them addictive. They're addictive. She loves them so much. You know, her body just takes her to the gym. It's fantastic. She's addicted to the gym. So the point was, is that when she first started going, it was healthy. But then when she would, would go four or five times a day, whenever she could, Obviously, she reached the point of diminishing returns because at first going out, having time to herself, exercising made her a better mother. But what happened with this addiction, if you like, it led her to being an absentee mother. 
Okay, so she was running out every chance she get. I've got to get out of here. I got to get away from you whenever I can. I got to leave. I got to leave. I got to leave. Reminds me of my my mother uh, used to say. My father, you know, there were five kids, and I remember my father bought my mother a tennis racket. I think for her thirtieth birthday or fortieth birthday. I don't know what. And you know, the joke was that after he got her that tennis racket, we never saw her again. <laughs> you know because she discovered tennis and she was a real athlete before that but you know for the rest of her life or Hashem she played tennis up into her 80s you know and uh anyway that was the joke though oh boy we got you that tennis racket and that was the end you know that was the beginning for you and the end for us she was always on the tennis courts but she was a good mummy too but anyway that's the point where do you reach the point of diminishing returns so we have to ask this about anything that we do. Is it fulfilling the purpose? Meaning, is it helping me grow higher spiritually? Or is it excessive? Is it too much? Is it killing the plant with too much water? Right? Okay, we're going to go on to another idea. Actually, we're going to go on to really defining what Taiva is. So we have a good working, um, working definition for us to take us through these classes. So the first idea is that we said last week that we talked about the four elements or categories of character traits, right? Earth, water, wind, and fire. And in every single one of these elements, there's going to be desires and lusts or, or difficulty with impulse control, right? The altar of Kelm, who was a great Musser master from Europe, says that we see Taiva as repulsive, right? Being out of control, being animalistic, if you like. We see it as repulsive. And even the word Taiva has a very negative connotation in the Hebrew language. So why is it that we find it so repulsive? So the altar of Kelm says, you see yourself as an intelligent person with good values, and then you find yourself succumbing to something that is so temporary and so momentary that your seichel doesn't agree, your, your intellect doesn't agree with what you're doing. And it feels repulsive because you don't feel like you're in control, right? And that's what he says the nature of taiva is. Taiva is very fleeting. You do it in the moment. And either you'll forget after you've done it because it was totally not meaningful, or you regret a moment later and say to yourself, why did I do that? And we dislike ourselves in this, so to speak, temporary moment of insanity, right? We're not happy with ourselves. We start beating ourselves up. Why did you do that again? Why did you say that again? Why do you always have to, you know, interrupt? Why do you, whatever it is, why can't you stop it? And so what this is, is it's a an eclipse of the seichel. In the moment of time, the seichel, of course, is your intellect, that which is supposed to rule us, Right. We said before, to be a melech, the moach has to be at the top, the brain. Then comes the heart, the emotions, and then comes the action, right? That's a melech. Okay, so Rav Dessler, who was a great Musser rabbi as well, he says that when you are engaged in taiva, your long-term vision is clouded, right? You've forgotten about the future ramifications at the moment which is why you'll say, why did I do that afterwards, right? But Rev. Dester says, at the moment that you're doing it, you, you are opening two separate valves. He says, the, the valve of your mind closes. Sorry, you're succumbing to, to you're having two separate valves that are, that are in activity. The seichel is closing and the taiva is opening. That impulse, that desire is opening while the seichel is closing. The moment before you do something, you're struggling with, I really shouldn't do this. I really shouldn't eat that piece of chocolate cake. I really shouldn't buy that extra 
sweater that I really don't need, right? Or order that extra thing on Amazon because it's so easy just to click on it. I shouldn't. But the, and the moment after you ask yourself, why did I do this? Where, what was going on, right? And again, at the moment that this is happening, you're not thinking of the bigger picture. So the Sisei Chaim, Rabbi Chaim Friedlander, describes this as a map of life. He says, imagine a map of life, and the only thing exposed is one part of the map. A very dark, a very, it's a very dark map, and you can't see the past, and you can't see the future. The only thing you can see is the present. Okay, so when we are in a moment of taiva, the past disappears, the future disappears, and we're in this moment of present. So it's dark because we are, we've lost our ability, right, to see into the future. It says, who is the wise person? The one who sees the consequences of his actions, right? Haro'eh es the one who sees what's going to come after. But at this moment of taiva, of impulsivity, we can't remember, right? For example, you've been on a diet and you've been so good all through Yanta, right? And you've got this dress that you want to fit into for that simcha. But at the moment that you give in to that delicious and delectable, whatever it is that you love, you forget everything. You forget about the dress. You forget about the simcha. You forget that you've been so good for the last month. It all disappears. The part of your brain goes dark. Okay. So back to the four character types. And again, we said that each character type is going to struggle differently with this impulsivity. It will, it will um, manifest in a different way. Okay. So the Aish Taiva, if you have Aish element, which we all do, but if you are primarily or predominantly an Aish personality, which by the way, the more I've been reading and teaching this, I'm not so sure that I'm Aish anymore so much. I'm starting to think I'm a little bit more wind, which is, you know, talking and thoughts and that kind of thing. Maybe the Aish comes along and, you know, moves my wind in other areas, but it's interesting, the more you think about it, you get to know, and the more you learn about it, you get to see that uh, you may not be what you thought you were, right? Anyway, so Aish, so Aish, what's the Taiva for Aish? So the Taiva for Aish, as we said, is to control, to criticize, right? Because that gives you a sense of power, of being on top, moving up the ladder, right? So this can, you know, come out, you know, in so many relationships in our lives, right? We, you know, we want to say something, you know, we want to tell our daughter-in-law or our daughter something about the way they're raising their kids or something they're not doing right. And we bite our tongue over and over and over again. We don't say it, we don't say it, we don't say it, we don't say it. And then all of a sudden, there's that moment, there's that day, there's that experience where we can't help it and we say it, right? So this is, you know, you know, or we say, you know, we say to our son who's sitting and learning and learning and learning, you know, we say, when are you going to get a job already, right? Whatever it is, whatever that thing is that... <clears throat> You're holding yourself back from saying. So somebody said, you know, silence is golden, but duct tape is silver, you know? Right. Okay. It's very good. You could be so good and then you mess up. Okay. So what about the earth element? How does this manifest with the earth element? So the earth element is the person that says, you know what? Just another five minutes in bed. Just another five minutes, you know? I, I'll just relax for a little more because I really didn't sleep so well. And I got up, you know, in the middle of the night and, you know, I, I need another five minutes. Or <clears throat> this is the same person who will ignore their to-do list. A person who will procrastinate. And the struggle for the earth person is 
I just need a few more minutes to relax, right? I just, I'm just going to stay in my robe a little longer, keep my fuzzy slippers on, you know, have a nice lazy day, whatever it is, but not for the right reasons. And the Ruach person, the Ruach person is speech. And of course, this is all the areas of speech where we have difficulty, right? Lashon Hara, Rechilus, which for those of you who don't know what that means, that means when I tell somebody else what somebody said about them, okay? Which increases all kinds of warfare in this world, right? If a terrorist has been successful that morning, it might be because of your Rechilus or Lashon Hara. I mean, not to scare everybody, but that's the power that we have, each one of us individually, right? To protect the Jewish people when we guard our tongue, when we're careful about what kind of weapons we send out through our tongue, telling somebody else something negative that they said about them can only be bad, right? We, we might have done that in the schoolyard when we were, you know, in third grade, but hopefully we don't do it anymore. So wind is exaggerating, right? We're going to talk about that. Exaggerating. Well, I was, you know, I was just embellishing the story a little bit to make it more exciting, right? People who like to talk, people who like to tell stories. Well, I don't know if there were a million people there. Okay, maybe there were 10, you know, whatever right? It doesn't matter, right? So this is Taiva. This is Taiva. I can make the story more exciting if there were a million people there. It's not as exciting if there were only a hundred, right? A thousand, whatever. Okay, a million, we're going a little bit too far. Nobody's going to believe you with a million. But um, so this is the point that Taiva is a wider definition that impacts all the elements. So a certain rabbi, I don't know who here, said that there's something overwhelming about Taiva because when you're engaged in that moment, it's like you're fighting a losing battle. And, you know, we have areas in our life where we fail over and over again. And we can just throw up our hands in despair and say, that's it, I'm done. I can't handle this. I can't do this. This is as good as I'm going to be. I was born this way. What's your excuse? You know, whatever it is, right? So, you know, we feel like we're fighting a losing battle because there's a lot of baggage that each one of us has that leads to this impulsive behavior. So whatever it is for us, it, it started a long time ago. And maybe it's got deep psychological roots, right? And maybe I have to be in therapy for the rest of my life. But the point is, the fact that it's very strong and powerful and the fact that it attacks us physically, right? There are physical temptations and there are emotional temptations, right? The emotional temptation to say what I want to say, to get it out because I'll feel better even if everybody in the room will feel awful, right? And I've just destroyed a whole bunch of relationships or I've chipped away at it, right? And, you know, the mother or mother-in-law that doesn't, that nobody wants to be around because they can't control the negative comments that are constantly coming out of their mouth. The desire to correct and to criticize. And then they wonder, you know, why doesn't anybody want me around? So is it really possible to win? So here's an interesting idea I never heard of before. So the question is, when does the Yetzirah come into a human being? Okay, the Yetzirah is really the root of Taiva, of this difficulty to control ourselves, even though our intellect knows what's right. But like we said, we become totally darkened to the past, to the future, and all that matters is we unload whatever it is, right? Whether it's speech or whether it's giving into, I just want to sit on the couch and do nothing, right? Or I need to control other people. So the Yetzirah, so the Yetzirah, uh, the, the, the Torah teaches, the Gemara teaches, 
basically has a stronghold on the human being for at least 12 or 13 years of human development. In other words, we come into this world as little Yetzer Haras, okay? The Yetzer Tov only comes into a person at Bat Mitzvah and Bar Mitzvah, okay? Before that time, we're not completely evil, but it does say that man is born like a wild ass, a wild donkey. And what our parents try to do in those 12 or 13 years they've got till we supposedly reach manhood and adulthood, right? Is it's all training. You know, it's all like, like when I'm teaching these little boys in the afternoon, I feel like, you know, it's like dolphins, you know, give me a fish, you know, here's a candy for you. Here's a candy for you. Good. You did good. You said good. You shut your mouth. That's great. Stop, 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 stop. I'm just busy dispensing candy and prizes all day long, right? And it's funny because this is rampant in the yeshiva system, right? A friend of mine who taught in Beis Yaakov here in the girls' school, she just moved to New York and now she's teaching in a boys' school. And she told me she cannot believe how much candy and prizes go around. She didn't need this in the girls' school. She said she never gave candies or prizes. Now everybody's telling her, no, you got to come with Laffy Taffies and you got, you know, and you got to be throwing them around all day long. Okay, whether it's good or bad, you know, that's not what we're talking about here. But it's like training the dolphins, okay? It's like training your dog. Here's a cookie. You did this, you did that. That's what it's about. Because there's no yates or toes. Not in the real sense. So everything you're trying to do is training, training. You know, I, I'm going to do this because I'm going to get a reward. You know, it's good for me. Everybody's happy with me. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. But before we leave, let me get to, let me teach you this idea because it's so interesting. So the Yetzirah gets there before the Yetzirah Tov does. And there's actually a discussion in the Gemara between Antoninus, who was a Greek uh, emperor, and Rabbah, who was Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, they were very close friends. And Rabbi Antoninus asks Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, when does the Yetzirah come into a human being? Does it come in at birth or conception? Okay. So the answer that Rabbi gives is he says, it comes in at birth, definitely at birth, because if it came in at conception, then the fetus would never agree to stay confined in the womb for nine months, okay? The fetus, if it had its Yetzirah, would be fighting the entire time to get out. And basically, the, the nature of the Yetzirah is that this is the nature of the Yetzirah. Sorry, so we get the Yetzirah at birth, right? After conception, after conception, after the nine months, because again, Rav is saying, if the Yetzirah would be before that, you know, human nature is don't tell me what to do. That's the voice of the Yetzirah. Don't tell me what to do. I'll do it myself. And even the fetus inside the mother, if it had a Yetzirah, would be fighting to get out saying, don't tell me that I have to stay in this little cramped place for nine months. I'm out of here. I don't want to be here, right? So even a young baby won't eat if it doesn't want to, right? You can give a young baby food and it refuses, it throws it on the floor because even a young baby is already saying, don't tell me what to do, don't tell me what to eat. Of course, I always say teenagers are just two-year-olds in much bigger bodies right? It's like, don't tell me what to do. Don't, you know, like the, the, the two-year-old is taking your pots and pans out of the, out of the, the cupboard all the time, right? Or throwing food on the floor, whatever it is, don't tell me what to do. It continues. And of course, it continues even into adulthood. One of our biggest taivas, right, is don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. And of course, this is the ego. This is the Yetzer Hara in its, you know, the super ego, if you like, right? The id, the impulses that Freud spoke about. And, you know, this is something that is not completely negative. It's helped the Jewish people survive, right? Don't tell us what to do. We're not listening. 
right? And we very often go against the status quo because we're afraid of the status quo. Because the status quo very often have gathered together to try to annihilate us like Haman, right? And the other Hamans throughout history. So of course, don't tell me what to do can be a good thing. And that's also, by the way, why some people don't get the vaccines, right? My husband's noticed that a lot of Russians don't get the vaccine because they have a very strong tradition, very recent in history of living in a communist regime and being told what they can and can't do, having to hide who they are, etc. And for them, when a government's telling them to do something, that's what it brings up. It brings up fear and it brings up, don't tell me what to do. Because when you tell me what to do, it's not good for me. Right? It's uh, the death of Judaism, or it's the death of me as a Jew, or it's the taking away of my freedoms. So, you know, a lot of people have this just by virtue of, and even, you know, Jews in general, my husband sometimes jokes, he says, you know, Jews who don't want to get the vaccine or they don't follow rules, you know, my husband will sometimes joke and say they think it's the Polish government. You know, they've been living in America for hundreds of years and Canada where the government basically is good to its citizens and does things for the well-being of of its citizens. But a Jew who's been traumatized by Jewish history, right, can feel like, "Uh uh-uh, if they say left, I go right. If they say up, I go down because they're out to get us. And they can continue to have this mentality even when they've been in a free country for many years. So I'm not excusing that. I'm just saying there is a sociological and psychological basis to understand why some people have a very hard time following rules or going with the status quo. And the I not going to or I listen, you know, can sometimes, again, be coming from a good place. But when it comes to right? Being good Jews, doing what the Torah asks us to do, keeping the mitzvot. We have to be constantly working against this taiva, this impulse of saying, you know, I'm the boss. I'll do it when I want to. I'm, you know, I'm not going to do anything that I don't want to do. And so that's where sometimes this Yetzir Hara of don't tell me what to do can be very negative. Okay, ladies, I think that we've um, spoken about a lot of things. Yes, I am taking questions, please.